All right, we can start. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. A quick update on, on Lapine. It's interesting that uh, Christopher just mentioned that uh, when, when good things are happening, the enemy likes to attack, and, and that's uh, in a weird way an encouragement as far as what's going on in Lapine right now because uh, this morning we had some things just pop up that were like, you know, clear attacks from the enemy trying to, you know, discourage us and trying to, to interrupt what's happening. And, and, and so we just have to believe our theology sometimes and know that um, God is bigger than these things. Uh, there, there, last week, there were still some 70 people that came, which was great. Um, they, they, uh, financially are, are already beginning to stand on their own too. It's already encouraging to see that it looks like that's not going to be something we have to carry because church planning does, you know, cost money, obviously. Um, the, the, the fact that it's going good right now means that we're going to be able to start our rotation sooner than we thought because David thought he was going to have to go down there and just kind of like lay the groundwork for a long period of time, but everybody's already like bought in. And it's cool. So in December, uh, Chad gets to come here. David's going to be able to come here in December and preach. And Terry and I get to go down there. And so we're already going to be starting that up, which is exciting. But I would just encourage you guys to pray right now. I know, um, you know, I don't think David would mind me saying it. I know he, he feels just like he's under a spiritual attack right now. He knows the enemy's coming after him and, and, uh, he and his wife have just, you know, been feeling it, and they remembered about eight years ago when they when they planted another church when the same thing happened. Oddly enough, so we would ask you guys to just pray, continue to pray specifically for these attacks that are coming, and and just that God would be mighty in them, and that He would show us that the enemy, you know, isn't an enemy at all for Him, and and He can triumph over anything. So even this morning, as they're down there struggling with some things, and, and not everything kind of you know sometimes a plan doesn't come together. I'm going to just ask for the Lord to, to watch over that. Father, we pray specifically right now for the work that's going on, um, both in Lapine and here. We, we, we know that the enemy doesn't want to see more souls saved. We know that he doesn't want to see Christians walking in victory. And, and we know that he looks for those that he can devour. And so we pray, Father, that you would, in your power uh, and in your might, glorify your name and glorify yourself, even in the midst of these things that we see as troubles and, and, and problems, that you would just knock them over like they're no big deal and help everybody to see how great you are. So this morning, even down there, uh, when things didn't go according to plan, I, I pray that somehow in your might, uh, you would just make this all beautiful and, and make it work. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're picking things up um, today as Paul and Barnabas have wrapped up their first missionary journey. Uh, they've been gone for quite a while, and now they're returning to the town of Antioch, which is the church that sent them out to report back about all that God has done in the last two years since they left. That's a long time, and we're just reading through these chapters like, you know, it seems lickety split, but two years went by from the time they left till the time they came back. And this would have been really kind of an exciting time for the church to get this report back as to, you know, what happened? You know, how are the, cause you don't, you can't, you know, we have Facebook and, and, and social media and email and text, you know, you can, they didn't have that. So they just waited two years to find out what happened. And now they get to find out. In Acts 14, 27, it says, and when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And that's exactly why they were sent out. God opened a door that had previously been closed for Gentiles or non-Jews to become the people of God. And Paul and Barnabas got to take part in introducing them to this God. And many of them trusted Christ as their Savior and became part of the family. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I hear about somebody becoming a Christian, it just does something to me. There's nothing else quite like hearing about 
God transforming a sinner into a saint. And it, it always causes me to well up and worship God. And I'm sure that's exactly what was going on in the church as they listened to story after story after story of what God did. But as Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch, verse 1 tells us that a group came down from Judea to challenge the validity of the salvation that occurred on their missionary journey, which would have been pretty frustrating, quite frankly. It's just what we're talking about. When good things are happening, the Lord's active. The enemy is also active. So in Acts 15, verse 1, we read, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Circumcision was a Jewish thing, not commonly practiced among the Gentiles. And the problem is, of course, that these guys were making it a necessary requirement for salvation. So their message was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be circumcised, and you will be saved. That's not what Paul and Barnabas had been preaching for the last two years. Their message was very different. It was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, period. And it may not seem like a huge difference, but it is a huge difference, which is why we read in verse 2, after uh, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I like that. That's a nice way of saying it. That guy, it got ugly. You know, they, they went to town here. After they had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. It, like I said, th- this was a debate. This was, this got, you know, probably pretty heated, I would guess. And so now they all have to go to the principal's office. They all have to go to Jerusalem, uh, which is the hub of the church right now, kind of the headquarters where the apostles were. This is where uh, Peter and James are, and, and they need to go there and get it settled. This meeting is now referred to as the Jerusalem Council, and it marks a very important point in the life of the church because it defined what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. So verse 3 tells us that, Um, as they go, it says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So you see the same thing, uh, the importance of sharing the praises of God as we go along the journey. Um, this is why we do it on Sunday mornings. This is why we make time for, for praises, for people to just actually tell all the, the good things that, that God is doing. And that's partly why we want the sharing time here to be praise-heavy. I'm just going to give a quick plug for that. Uh, it's nice when it's praise-heavy uh, because we do want to hear prayers. We do want to hear the things that are going on. But there's something about hearing what God is doing, hearing the praise of God's the praise of the lips on God. I'm saying that wrong, but I think you know what it is. Praise of God's people on their lips, something like that. There's a verse. Look it up. It's a good one. It's a dandy. Put it on your fridge when you find it. Email it to me. I need it. Uh, but there's something about this that just builds our faith. And, and it gives us hope when we hear about what God is doing in the lives of people around us. I love just the testimony of Valerie saying, you know, God did this thing in our lives. And we, you know, she's testifying about the power and the goodness of God. And I need to hear that. And we all need to hear that. And so the church got to hear that. Um, when they when they came through town. So, but verse five says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees—that's just got a bad ring to it, right there. <laughs> who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, "It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses." 
So the good news is that people from the party of the Pharisees were becoming Christians. The bad news is that people from the party of the Pharisees were becoming Christians and bringing their baggage with them, which is something we do. And we'll talk about that more later. We do it without even realizing it. These believers from the party of the Pharisees could not fathom a circumcision-free method of salvation. It didn't make sense to them. It didn't compute because for them, the first step in their life, the first step in becoming a Jew had always been circumcision. And that had always been an important part of their life. The problem is that circumcision is just the first step in a long life of law-keeping. Right? I don't know if you noticed that, but in verse 1, they just said circumcision is a requirement. And then in verse 5, they said, circumcision, oh, and plus the whole law of Moses. <laughs> I mean, that, that escalated fast, right? It went from one thing to 600 and whatever things. That's a lot. And that's the problem with, with works-based righteousness. I give you one thing to do, and when you figure that out, guess what I'm going to do? I'll give you five more things to do. And then the, the one that you got down the first time, that's undone. and you gotta, It's just never-ending. It doesn't stop. Never enough. So verse 6, it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. From the very start of the church, God has given leaders to the church to guide and to protect sound doctrine. Uh, the apostles were there to do it along with the elders. Now, capital A apostles are gone. They don't exist any longer. But the church still has elders or pastors. That's It's the same term. I know that that's, I don't know why that's controversial, because I think if you read the Bible carefully, you'll see that it's the same thing. Actually, elder is much more common term for pastor than pastor isn't really even used. But the idea of an overseer or uh, an elder is, is a very common, commonly um, name used for the leaders in the church. They're supposed to be appointed in every church, multiple elders, because what will happen is something will come up that I might not know the answer to. I get together with these three other guys. We start praying. We start searching the scriptures. And pretty soon, I mean, this morning I was like confounded by something that had come up. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what to do. But I have confidence that when the three of us get together and sit down and talk and pray and search the scriptures, we'll walk away with an answer. And I love that. I'm glad that this isn't a Lone Ranger situation. You are too, believe it or not. You really, really are. Uh, anyway, not surprisingly, Peter speaks up first. Um, and partly because he's Peter. That's what Peter does, right? But, but more importantly, it's because God had already spoken on this matter by giving Peter a very clear object lesson, which he refers to in verse 7. Verse 7 says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter is referring back to what took place in chapter 10. That's That's been a while now, but that's that the deal where he goes to uh, Joppa and he's staying at Simon the Tanner's house and he sees this sheet come down with all the food in it. Or the, not food, animals. I just automatically went to food because that's what they become in my mind. But the animals come down. And the message from God was, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. And really, he was talking about what was going to happen with the Gentiles. And so Peter's just referring back to this thing when Cornelius and his whole household were saved. And when that happened on that day, Cornelius didn't have to get circumcised before it happened, and he didn't have to get circumcised after it happened. And that's what Peter's pointing out. They didn't have to take part in any Jewish ritual or custom to be saved. 
God gave them the Holy Spirit and declared them clean, which erased any distinction between them and the Jewish Peter. And if, if God says that a salvation is bona fide, guess what? It's bona fide. Yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to question it. God said, no, this is, I put my stamp of approval on this. It's good. But what Peter asks them next is really the defining moment in verse 10. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's a great question. Uh, the law was like a yoke. That's one of those, I'm not a farmer, so forgive me if I get this wrong, but that's one of those wooden things you put on an ox or two oxen. And the idea is that it it controls them. It, it directs them. And the whole idea of the law was it, it was this weight to lead them to God. That was the point of it. It was meant to show them they couldn't do it on their own. They had to get to God somehow. And that's what the law represented. And so he's asking, why do you want to put this weight that God has taken off of them? Why do you want to put it back on them? And he equates it to putting God to the test. It's like somebody saying, you know, God has declared them righteous by their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. And then somebody comes along and says, wait a minute, God. You know, I'm not sure that that's enough. I'm not sure that that, that really, you know, covers it. We think that it might be a little insufficient. So what we'd like to see is these works added to that just to make it, you know, complete. And that just is horrible to think about, Right. And that's ridiculous. Our good works, our best works, according to the Bible, are like a filthy rag to God. Why would we, why would we try to add those in to what Christ said was finished? When he said it is finished, he, he meant it's done. I did it right. It's complete. There's nothing you can add to it. And the thought that we could add something in is, is just, it's, it's horrible. So Peter points out how foolish this thinking was, and then he gives them the right answer in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Grace. That's the, that's the key. Not works, grace. We'll be saved by grace. They will be saved by grace. Not of works. And in verse 12, I love this, it says, all the assembly fell silent. And I think they fell silent because we know that's the truth. We know that there's nothing we can do. Grace alone is, is correct. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas chime in as the second and third witnesses, along with Peter, to what God was doing. Gentiles were getting saved apart from any Jewish add-ons, and their conversions were real. And, and they want to make sure everybody knows that. And then in verse 13, Jesus' brother James who is now considered a pillar in the church in Jerusalem, speaks up. Verse 13, he says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, who's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos. Verse 16, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So he quotes the prophets and then he concludes, Therefore my judgment is, we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. 
James affirms what is being said by Peter and by the others, but then he does, does something very important. He goes to Scripture as the authoritative voice to conclude the matter. I like James's style. It's like, I don't know how many times you've been in a Bible study and somebody will say, well, this is what I think, or I feel this way. It's like, good for you. What does the Bible say? You know, I don't trust you at all. I'm just, you know, I, I want to know what God's word says on the matter. And that's what James does. He just puts the stamp on it by saying, well, let's look at the Bible. And he, and he doesn't just stop with Amos. He says, all the prophets agree. He looks at the whole counsel of God and says, all of them say are saying the same thing. Study the scriptures. You'll find out God always had a plan for the Gentiles. He always had a people that he was going to call out for his name. And we're just seeing it happen now, guys. So let's not get in God's way with what he's doing. So that's our passage. Um, and then I'm going to give you three takeaways from it that I think are important for us to look at. These are the three takeaways for you note takers out there. And these aren't that good, but I just, I, I put them out anyway because they entertain me. The first one is check your bags. And that, that means like when you go to the airport, you check your baggage. That's what that one means. Check your bags. The second one is determine essentials from non-essentials. And the last one is his grace alone can save us. So those are the three things. The first one is, as I said, check your bags. I mentioned this already, but everybody has baggage they carry with them when they become Christians. We really don't even necessarily know we have it because we've just been carrying it with us our whole lives and we don't, we don't even necessarily know it's there. Uh, baggage can come from the era you were brought up in. It can come from the religion you were raised with. It can come from the accepted world culture that, that you're a part of at any given time. It can even come from the, you know, the, the part of the country or the part of the world you were raised in. You know, what goes on in the South versus what goes on in, you know, in, in the West and in California. That, very different, most likely. I, I was raised in Idaho, so very different there too. Yeah. I like Idaho. Um, if you were raised in the fifties, there are uh, some very different ideas about what is right and wrong from somebody who was, you know, born in 2000. Just the way it is. So something as innocent as like somebody wearing a baseball cap in church can be a reason to throw down. You're okay. It's okay. We don't, I mean, I've seen that. It's like, that was, that was a thing. In the fifties, if you wore a hat indoors, it was disrespectful. Well, when I grew up, it wasn't. I didn't, you know, I didn't even get it. I remember walking to a, into a church at, I'm giving myself away, but we went to Oktoberfest, okay, at Mount Angel for the food. And, uh, and, and I was with a friend. We went into the, there's a really neat Catholic church. It's beautiful. And we went in there and my friend had a baseball cap on and somebody confronted him right when he walked in and just like let him have it, you know? And he was like, I didn't know. It was just funny though. It was a reason to throw down. And I think we do the same thing with like stuff like hymns and choruses. You want to get a good debate going, you know, we'll throw that out into the room and see what happens. It's like pretty soon these, you know, nice little old ladies will start wanting to go to blows with you. It's just weird. But it's cultural. It's, it's something that we just bring with us. And it's bad enough that we have baggage that we carry around, but then we want to add it to other people's baggage. It's like, oh, you know what? Carry, let me put this around your neck and you can carry this too because it's, it's great. It's not great. We don't want to ever be guilty of placing any obstacles in somebody's path when they're on their way to Christ. And we do this. We find ways to do this without even meaning to. In our text today, the Jews made circumcision an obstacle. And in effect, what they were saying was, well, in order for you to come to Christ, you need to become a Jew like me. Well, that's not true. That's an obstacle. And it may sound absurd, but, but we do the same kinds of things today as Christians. There's all kinds of things like this that we do that we, we don't realize, but all it's doing is it's adding weight to a person's back 
And, and it ends up denying the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. Because you're basically saying, oh, in order for you to become a Christian, you need to become like me first. <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. That's not the gospel at all. So what are some of the things we throw in people's pathways? The first one that I thought of in the church in general was money. You know, that's one of these things that, that comes out over and over again. You want forgiveness and victory in your life? I'll just make your check out too. You know, it's like, what? I, even as I was preparing this yesterday, there was a headline uh, that I read from a famous female pastor who I will not name, but I really want to. But, but I won't because there's like a political affiliation that'll just get people riled up. But this is, she just literally promised her followers that if they send in $229, they would experience a sudden defeat of their enemies. Only $229. And it was based on 1 Chronicles 22.9, which you could have come away with $2.29, but, but she didn't. She went with 229 there. And, and I, this kind of stuff just makes me sick when I read it. It, it gets me, I mean, I don't, I'm not an angry person. I used to be, but it makes me angry. Anyone who makes the gospel a means of gain is despicable. Salvation is a free gift that Christ purchased for us. If you are in Christ, by the way, you're victorious. He died so that you could experience a sudden defeat of your enemies without having to get your checkbook out. Your enemies are sin and death. And He paid the price so that you could be victorious over those things. And he doesn't make us get our wallet out to receive it. That's one of the reasons we don't pass the plate here. I know people think it's weird because if you're used to that, it seems like, but we don't want to do that. We don't ever want anybody to think that money is necessary for you to come to Christ. So we hide boxes on the walls and we hope people fill them up and they do. <laughs> but, but we're not going to do that because it, it sends such a wrong message that the world is, is sending right now. And, and it, it makes me sick. The other thing I see that people often throw in the way as an obstacle to get to Christ are signs, wonders, and miracles. And I love signs, wonders, and miracles. I think that's great to see God at work. But when you say something like, you know, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not really a Christian, that's just, that's ridiculous. It's not true. Or, like I pointed out several weeks, there's a, there's a, um, a famous church that, that, uh, I'll just say it. I know I'm going to get in trouble again, but it's Bethel. That, that the guy has said, that a gospel that doesn't include signs, wonders, and miracles lacks the power to save you. And that's a lie. That's not true. Uh, signs, wonders, and miracles can authenticate the message, but there are tons of people in this room that were saved in, by faith alone in Christ alone that never experienced a sign, wonder, or miracle to get there. It's not necessary for salvation. It's not necessary for the gospel to have power. So don't throw that as an, as an obstacle. Other obstacles are stuff like the way a person looks. Or their, or their past behavior. There's a lot of churches that, you know, you, you, you wouldn't actually say it, but you kind of send the message that if you have a sinful past, you're not welcome here. I mean, think about that for a minute. If that's true, guess what? <laughs> Turn out the lights. You know, the party's over. Let's go home. There's nothing left to do, right? It's like, well, nobody can go to church at that point, right? It's like telling somebody you got to clean yourself up before you come to Christ to be cleansed. Well, that's why we come to Christ. I can't clean myself up. That's the problem. So don't tell me I have to take a bath before I can come into church. That's where I receive cleansing. Jesus himself invites us to come just the way we are. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I just picture that yoke, the baggage we stick on people. 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what I need. That's exactly what I need. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can feel the weight coming off you when you read it. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our burdens. He doesn't add burden to us. He takes it off of us. And we should never do that, do that to somebody else. We should never add, you know, it's hard getting through the week. And, and if you come to the, the church and you don't hear the gospel, if you don't hear about something that will lighten your load, we are not doing our job. Because I can preach, you know, moralism to you. I can say, you're not doing good enough. You better try harder. You better work harder. You better run faster. That's a lot of what churches are teaching right now. That's exhausting. It's like, I, that's why I need Jesus. One of the ways we can clear the path for people to have open access to Jesus is by determining what are essentials and what are non-essentials. At the Jerusalem Council, they did this very thing. They needed to determine if circumcision was essential to a person getting saved, and they determined it was a non-essential. Does that mean circumcision is bad? No, not necessarily. It's just bad to make it something necessary for salvation. Galatians 6.15 says it this way, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. Rather, what matters is being a new creation. That's the part that matters. Baptism is a similar parallel in the church today. That's one of those things that some people will say that it's necessary or essential for salvation. If you're not baptized in water, you're not really saved. Or if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're not really saved. Those are both good things, but they don't save us. That's just another way of, of salvation by works, if, if we make these things requirements. And as Paul says in Romans, if it is by works, then it is no longer grace. And we need to be careful not to make non-essential things essential things because it takes us down a slippery slope of having to earn our salvation by our works or having to keep our salvation by our works. And both of them are impossible and really frustrating. If you've ever tried to you know, be righteous on your own, you know what that's like. It doesn't work. Just constantly frustrating. Now, there are non-essential things that, as a church, we'll differ on. And we like to refer to these as open-handed things, open-handed beliefs. Um, that's stuff like which spiritual gifts are for the church today. To us, that's open-handed. You know, can you baptize an infant or do you only baptize believers? We have an opinion about that. We believe in believer's baptism, but we consider that to be an open-handed thing. We're not going to say you can't come to church here if you don't believe that. Um, stuff like end times things. You know, some of you are pre-trib. Some of you are post-trib. Some of you believe we're in the millennium right now. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Probably most of you. That, that I think, I think that makes you what's called pan-millennial, where you just hope that it's going to pan out in the end somehow. <laughs> Those are open-handed issues because they're not salvation issues. And the Bible leaves room for different conclusions. But grace alone is not an open-handed issue. It's a closed-handed issue. Because quite simply, if you open your hand on grace alone, salvation flies away. It's gone. And that brings us to the last one, is that His grace alone can save us. The dilemma that the Jews were having here was that they were saying salvation for the Gentile was incomplete, and it would be incomplete until they added the work of circumcision. 
So they were teaching grace plus works theology. And that's a really common theology out there, by the way. Grace plus a little bit of what you do. Biblical Christianity teaches grace alone theology, which teaches us that our salvation is complete because Jesus' works were imputed or transferred to us. His works make us righteous in God's sight, not ours. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 make it extremely clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by our works. Now, that doesn't mean the works aren't important. They just can't save us. Okay, Our good works don't result in salvation. God's salvation results in our good works. Hugely different. Hugely different. If Christ has entered a life and you're a new creation and he's filled you with his spirit and written his law in your heart, guess what? Your works happen. They'll start showing up. But that's all of him. It's a really important distinction because one ultimately makes salvation completely dependent upon God and the other one makes it completely dependent on you. <laughs> Which one do you want? You know, What's in your wallet? It's like, I want, I want the first one, please. I don't want the other one because I'll be in trouble with that one. If it's up to me to gain my salvation, to do certain things to gain it, or to, to do certain things to keep it, to preserve it, I'm in trouble. I'm in huge trouble. That's not good news. That's bad news for me. If you need a picture to help illustrate this idea for you, I have one. It's kind of gross, but it's really effective. If, if you were to picture like this beautiful, clear glass of pure, sparkling water, and that represented holiness, the best thing I can come up with as an illustration would be if I have to add something to that, the best thing that I can come up with would be the equivalent of raw sewage. And even one drop of that would do what to it? I mean, it's, it's done. That thing is, it's, it, nobody's going to drink that. Nobody's going to want that. That's not holy anymore. It's completely defiled. It's completely gone. And that's what, that's what adding our works into the finished work of Christ would be like. We don't need, we can't add to it. We can't make it better. All we can do is mess it up. I like the way Charles Spurgeon says it. It's better than the gross thing I just said. He said, if there is to be in our celestial garment or our heavenly robe, but one stitch of our own making, we are all of us lost. If it's up to you to put one thread in that garment, it's over. Things gonna unravel. It's all gonna, you're just gonna, you know, it's just gonna be a pile of, pile of thread on the floor. That's what's gonna happen. But God has clothed us in the righteousness of His Son if we'll receive that by faith. And, and it's such a beautiful picture, something we can create or something He just covers us in. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, my life is hidden in Christ. My life is covered by His righteousness. I am cleansed by Him alone. And that's so much better than a, than a works-based righteousness. Trust me on this. One, one just doesn't work at all. We trust in Christ's work alone, His righteousness imputed to us, and that's what makes us clean. And that's partly what we do when we, when we celebrate and commemorate communion, is we remember what Jesus did for us. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And the table represents a body broken, and bloodshed for sinners. He was innocent, and he willingly took our place. And so as you come and have communion today, worship the one who saved you. Worship the one who took your place on the cross. Worship the one who gave you his righteousness so you could live and have victory.
Father, thank you for grace alone. Thank you that you have left none of it up to us, but all of it up to your son. I pray, Lord, that we would trust fully in his work, who Jesus is and what he's done. Lord, we know that it is only by placing our faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection that we can have life. And I pray, Lord, that if if there's anyone here right now that has been struggling to try to gain favor with you through their works, that they would throw their works down and run to the cross. Run to the cross and enjoy what Christ has done for them. We thank you for um, communion and for what it represents. We pray now that as we take it, Lord, that it would be meaningful to us and that we would worship you in Christ's name. Amen.